set, just how encouraging it's been to spend time with you over the last few days, and just how much I've appreciated uh, the hospitality. So many of you have shown me hospitality. I've, I've not gone without meals and, and, and fellowship, so it's been a, just a really encouraging time being here. So, so thank you for welcoming me in the way that you have. Um, well, tonight we continue... What did we talk about last night? Well, we made a big mess on this board, right? I cleaned it up a little bit to try, try to make things a little more manageable. Um, but we, we talked through each of these covenants, and there was a lot of ground to cover, wasn't there? Um, big ideas would be what? Well, we have this time period broken up into three epochs. That was a big idea, right? Three epochs, three eras. We have this first era, which I called what? Prime evil. You could say primitive if you want. Prime evil. First age, right? Uh, That runs up through when in Scripture? Okay, say more. Genesis up through 11. And then 12 begins here with Abraham. That's where Abraham is introduced. And I said that, that that next epoch, it runs through David up to the time of Christ. And when did I say this epoch ends? AD, why did I say that? I mean, I just picked a number out of the air. AD 70 sounded like a good year. The temple is destroyed. The, the temple is destroyed. And then I said that this epoch begins when? This one's a little bit harder. In one sense, it, it begins with the coming of Christ, but it, it's not in full effect, we, we would say, or, or exclusive effect until AD 70, because now we have that old epoch entirely faded out. So one epoch is fading in, the other is fading out. And it is interesting, you know, between, we would say about AD 30 and AD 70, how many years do you have there? Who can do math? 40, good. You didn't even need a calculator. 40 years, right? You say, well, that seems like kind of a significant number in the Bible, doesn't it? 40. Where have we seen that before? 40 years in the wilderness? Yeah. So, interesting. Well, okay, let's jump into tonight's material. But before we do, remember, where are the only salvific covenant of, covenants of grace? Was that salvific? No. Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> huh. Where? Christ. Christ. Okay. Okay. Um, there was potential. It was a covenant of works for Adam, just like this covenant is a covenant of works for Christ. There, there is potential for salvation here. There's potential for this blessing of life, right, if Adam had obeyed. And so we, we talked during the sermon about the fact that you really only can look at these two guys, Adam and, and Christ. O- only they are representatives of the human race, and only they, based on their obedience or disobedience, can give to those 
whom they represent, and the fact that they represent other people, like lots of other people, we refer to that how? What do we call those guys? Covenantal heads. They, they represent others. Okay, good. All right, we're all up to date here. So what I want to start with is, and what are we doing tonight? We're distinguishing between, uh, for, for lack of a better term, we could say a traditional. Now, I don't know why the, you know, they get to claim the name traditional, right? But tr- traditional form of uh, covenantalism that you see expressed in places like the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm going to contrast that with a Reformed Baptist approach to the covenants, right? Now, would somebody who subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith and somebody who subscribes to the Second London Baptist Confession, would they both agree that there are only these two guys that you can look to for eternal life? Would they agree there? Okay, good. Good. Yeah, we all agree. Would they agree that at the end of the day, you can only look to Christ in order to actually receive eternal life? Would they agree with that? Yeah, so full agreement there, no disagreement whatsoever. So where is the disagreement? And I'm just going to start here by saying it's in the way in which the covenant of grace, the only covenant of, and when we say the covenant of grace, I did talk about the Noahic covenant, so you were paying attention, Greg. I did talk about the Noahic covenant as being a kind of, co- of, a, kind of a covenant of grace, but it's a covenant of, of grace unto what? Temporal life, not eternal life. What we really need is not just temporal life, we need eternal life, ultimately. Would you all agree? We all need eternal life. And so when we say the covenant of grace, what we typically mean is this covenant, right? The covenant of which Christ is head. So if I'm going to a run-of-the-mill covenantal approach to Scripture, and contrasting that with a Reformed Baptist approach to Scripture, I would say this. We, we have this verse, Genesis 3.15. Anyone knows what happens in that verse? What does that mean? The first gospel. The first gospel. And, and, and so, so what happens? Yeah, we hear that what, what is going to take place? There's a promise there. What's, what's going to take place? This, okay. Seed of the woman going to crush the head of the, the serpent. So we have that in Genesis 3.15. And the argument would be this, that beginning there, which is all the way over here, right? Right after the fall, that everything after that is covenant of grace. It's all covenant of grace going forward. All of that's covenant of grace. Okay? We good? That would be the Westminster logic. Yeah, and and tonight I'm going to be spending less time expositing those actual confessions and more talking about the underlying logic. So that would be the logic. This is all covenant of grace. So what would a Reformed Baptist say? 
and we're going to unpack this, but I just want you to get the big idea at the beginning. What would a Reformed Baptist say? Okay, no, no, no sorry, wrong. <laughs> Positively, what would they say? Include Adam somehow? And let's be clear, there is grace in all of these covenants. So, great point. There is grace in all of these covenants. Um, and yet, we're going to call this covenant, what, not covenant, we're going to call it not cog, but cow. Right? Why do we call it, ooh, why do we call it cow, not cog? Covenant of works, meaning what? Adam has to, he has obligations, he has to obey the terms of the covenant in order to take hold of eternal life, and the position would be everything moving forward, that is just not the case. So you have the covenant of grace, you really have these two overarching covenants, and then the word for all of these covenants within this broader framework, these would be called administrations or dispensations administrations or dispensations of the one covenant of grace. So you have one covenant of grace, multiple administrations or multiple dispensations. All right, anybody have an idea as how the Reformed Baptist would tweak this? Okay, we're going we're to make it smaller. They have a smaller view of the covenant of grace. Okay, let's shrink this. Less expansive. Okay, here we go. We're sh when do I, tell me when to Tell me when to stop. I'm shrinking it here. Keep, keep going. Oh, man. Okay, right here. That is correct. This is really the, ol <laughs> the only covenant that we can refer to as covenant of grace. That's it, right there. Now you say, what about all those other covenants? What's happening then? There's no grace there, right? Yeah, the argument would be that none of these covenants have to do with eternal life. None of those covenants have to do with eternal life. It's only this covenant. So what about those people? They don't get, Abraham doesn't get eternal life. Moses doesn't get eternal life. David doesn't get eternal life. What would you say? Well, they do. How do they, we do, but we don't have the covenant of grace until right there. Looking forward to Christ. And, and we're looking back. Okay. And how can that be the case? Because, um, you know, Christ doesn't come until right here, how, how can that be effective for somebody way back there? Yeah, we have some really interesting verses in Scripture about Jesus, right? Wouldn't you agree? Some very here's two of them. Why, do, why, why didn't you look them up? The first one is Hebrews thirteen eight, and the other one. See, this is easy because they have the same numbers. Revelation thirteen eight. Somebody want to read for us Hebrews 13.8. 
with a loud, a loud voice. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, yes, yesterday, today, and forever. H- how is that possible? I mean, didn't Jesus I mean, come into existence at a particular point in time? Wasn't he born right from the womb of Mary? And then didn't he change a whole lot? He grew up, he learned things, we're told in Scripture. How can he be the same yesterday, today, and forever? He's God. He's an eternal person. Whatever he does here applies throughout the timeline of human history. What about Revelation 13.8? This is a a mind-bender, Revelation 13.8. Okay, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. How, I thought he got, he was crucified by the hands of lawless men at a particular point in time. So how can that verse talk about him being slain before the foundation of the world? Well, again, same answer. He's an eternal person. And what he does here applies throughout all human history. It's as if he was slain before the foundation of the world because he is an eternal, timeless person. Right? And that boggles our brain. But you're correct. Faith in God's promises at any point in time. And remember what we said, what, what is the means, the instrument for receiving eternal life? It's always the same thing. And what is it? Faith. Romans 4 is very particular very explicit in specifying that it was always faith. Always faith, even for Abraham, right? Abraham didn't do works to be saved. It was on the basis of his faith in God's promises. And he didn't know the big picture. He knew what had been told him at that particular point in time, and he he had faith in that, and God counted that faith to him as righteousness, And you know, the same is true for us today, isn't it? Do we know everything? I mean, we don't. Sorry if if you think that comprehensive knowledge can be achieved in this life. We know what God has revealed to us at this point. We know a lot more than Abraham did, but we still don't know everything. And, And so for us, it's that same principle. We need to place faith in what God has revealed to us. Okay. I'm going to flip this over now. I should probably move. No, I don't have to move those things. All I got to do is what? This? It's like magic. No, I can't do it that way. Can I do it the other way? No, can't do it that way. I'll just erase. I was hoping to do that trick, but uh, I mean, I can just turn it over. I I mean, I can just erase it. Oh, you know, you're smart. This should work. Let's try this one. Is that going to do? Look at that. Amazing. Thank you. 
Okay, so here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time tonight. We are going to draw a couple more charts up here, but they're not going to be as eensy-weensy as the ones last night, and I apologize for that. So, so here we go. I want to compare and contrast these two different approaches to the covenants. Um, what, how many lines do I need? One, two, three. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. One, two. Yes, sir. I would say that they're instrumental in the advancement of God's redemptive plan, which doesn't mean that they, per se, on their own, are redemptive. So I, wouldn't, I would not say the Mosaic Covenant is a redemptive covenant. I would say that it is instrumental in God's plan of redemption. Does that distinction help at all? One, I said I needed six, right? One, two, three. One, two, th I need four in between these. One, two, three, four. And then we're going to do one other one over here. We'll do this. And we'll do this. Okay, so if I'm looking at the logic behind WCF and I'm looking at the logic between 2LBC, we're going to consider a number of categories. So the first category, oh, and I want to do this. In this column right here is Old Covenant. In this column is New Covenant. And same thing over here, Old Covenant and new covenant. Okay, you're all, you're all following me? WCF logic, 2LBC logic. This column is the old covenant. This is the new. This is the old covenant. This is the new. We good so far? Okay. The first thing we need to think about is the type of covenant. That is number one. The type of, and didn't we talk about some different types of covenant? What, what kinds of covenants did we talk about? Works, grace, good enough. Yeah, we're not going to bring the covenant of redemption in right now. Covenant of redemption is a way of talking about what? A way of talking about, yeah, we're going into God's life in himself, and we're saying, what did God eternally will? as a plan of salvation. That's what we mean when we talk about covenant of redemption. Okay, so let's start here. For the, for the old covenant, what WCF logic, and I've already, I mean, you should already know the answer here, right, from what I just did on the other side of the board. What type of covenant is the old covenant? Grace. Did, did somebody say, somebody said Grace. I thought I heard that. It is a covenant of grace. Why? And that red bracket went all the way back. Right? It, 
until I erased it, <laughs> it subsumed the old covenant, did it not? And then what about the new covenant? <coughs> covenant of grace. Okay, good. The next thing we're going to talk about is not the type of covenant. Well, we did that already, so we're not going to do it again. But the type of membership. Type of membership. Does a covenant community have members? People who are part of that covenant community. They're in that covenant. That's what we mean when we say type of membership. Who's, who's in the covenant? Right? So if, and there are all kinds of covenants. So if we said uh, a marriage covenant, who's in the covenant? Well, you would think the husband and wife would be both part of that covenant. Right? And if we're talking about a covenant in which there is a, this representative head, all the people represented by that covenant head are in the covenant. Right? Okay, so this is the question of, well, what, what type of membership do you have in the covenant? So type of membership. Type of membership. For both of these, with this logic, both would be mixed. Now, what in the world do I mean by mixed? Anyone know? Okay, could be ethnic, but that's not the focus. Hmm? Believers and non-believers. Elect and non-elect, to put it more precisely. Believers and unbelievers, elect and non-elect, they're part of the covenant. Now, you look at the old covenant. Right? Think about Abraham. Was Abraham in the old covenant as we've been talking about it? Yes. Were all of Abraham's children believers? No. Name some examples. Ishmael. Who else do we have? Esau. Right? And then when we, when we have the 12 tribes and we look at the history of Israel, one of the nice things I think about the history of Israel when you read through the Old Testament is you're reading through national Israel. You know, they're coming into the promised land. You say to yourselves, I'm just so thankful that all of these people had a heart for God. They were all believers. Is, is that right? It's so encouraging. No, no, it's discouraging. You know, why is it discouraging? Because you have the covenant community and it's filled with non-believers. Mixed. According to this logic, right, be, what about the new covenant? Oh, and we'll get to baptism. We will get, we will get there. But yeah, that is true. You baptize your babies. Yes. So just like the old covenant, because remember, they're all subsumed under this broader category of covenant of grace, right? You would say mixed. Unbelievers are part of the covenant, okay? Uh, type of membership. Now, here's another question for you. Um, how do you get in to membership? That's type of membership. Let's say means of membership. How do you get in? Now, we all know how to get a membership at 
Costco, right? What, what do you got to do? You, you walk on into that little desk that they got there. You pay your fee. They take an awkward picture of you, and then they, they, they give you the membership card, right? That's how you get membership at Costco. Well, how do you become a member of this thing? How do you become a member of the covenant of grace? Okay, circumcision is, in, is a part of this, but that's not how you become a member. Not, well, obedient, kind of obedient. The primary way, what is the, pri- let's, let's phrase it that way. What's the primary way that you get into membership? You get born of covenant parents. You get born of covenant parents. So physical birth. That's the primary way. There are some other ways, right? You can get included in the covenant. You can become a covenant member by being part of the household of a covenant member. So you'll see in the old covenant, people who were perhaps servants, right? They they would be included in as well. And then there's another way. You can become an Israelite. You can become an ethnic Israelite. We call that becoming a proselyte. Right? You can become an ethnic Israelite. The primary means is physical birth. What do you think is true over here in the New Covenant? It's the exact same. Physical birth. How do you get into the covenant? You get born to covenant parents. Now, are there some other ways you can get into? Can you become a proselyte? In a sense, can you convert? Yeah, you can do that too. Physical birth still remains a primary way of getting to that covenant. So that's means of membership, how you get into it, how you get your membership card. Ooh, but what is the membership card? Now, I know what it looks like when you go to Costco, right? What does it look like to get your membership card? Now, now is, does your membership card at Costco, is, is that really at the end of the day what makes you a member? That you got a card? It's proof of your membership. It's a sign of your membership. And there is a sign here. A sign that you are a member. And what is the sign? Circumcision. You could say that's the sign of initiation into the covenant community circumcision ooh but here's where things get tricky we're in the new covenant is circumcision still the sign of membership what is it now baptism all right and down here we're really not going to talk about this much tonight but just recognizing this is the initiation sign but then there is Uh, something that you participate in for covenant renewal, a ceremony for covenant renewal. And we would put here the Passover. That's a covenant renewal ceremony. And what do we have here? Lord's Supper. Now here's what I want you to see. Because this is the essential commitment in this perspective. The essential commitment is the substantial, substantial 
unity, continuity between these two covenants. And what do I mean by substance or substantial? You're getting the ballpark. So if I said um, this right here, what am I pointing at? For those of you who can't see, a chair. Okay, and I I say this right here. These are substantially the same. Are they the same chair? No, but they're substantially the same because substance has to do with what a thing is. They're the different chairs, but they're substantially the same because they're both chairs. So what do I mean when I use that language here and say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are substantially the same? They're the same covenant. They are the same covenant. What is that covenant? covenant of grace they're both covenant of grace same covenant substantially and yet just like i pointed to two chairs i'm recognizing that there is some difference and so what language would i use to express that difference different administrations of the one substantially same covenant of grace exactly okay question Yeah, so the entire logic, well, well, here's where it comes from. The, the entire reason for fencing the table really comes down to 1 Corinthians 11, right? Which says, in order to participate in this covenant renewal ceremony, if that's how it's being thought of, in order to participate in this in a way that's going to bring about blessing for you rather than curses, you've got to do it properly. And there are three things in 1 Corinthians 11 that you have to do. Those things are... Remember Jesus, number one. Number two, you have to examine self. And number three, you have to discern the body. And I think that that there is a reference to uh, discerning, being considerate of, thinking about the other people you're gathered with as a body. And, and so you've got to do those three things. And so there's an appropriate and an inappropriate way to partake of that covenant renewal meal, and if someone isn't in good fellowship with the body, say if they're under church discipline, right, you, you would say, we're not allowing you to participate in this meal because you can't participate, it, participate in it in a worthy fashion. But if somebody's unregenerate, then according to this logic, well, they have, have they been baptized? Like sure. Have they been baptized? Have they been marked out? Have they got, do they have their Costco card? If you got your Costco card, you can come into Costco. Okay. Sorry, you really need to break it down to that level. Okay. And, and, then, and then the question is, um, have you paid, you know, I, I, I'm probably pushing this metaphor too far, you know, have you paid your dues? Yeah. 
right? You got the card, but you haven't paid your due. And well, sorry, sir, you're going to have to go to the front desk and pay, you know, re-up before uh, you can check out with your groceries. And I'm trying to make this fit on the spot here. But uh, (laughs) what is paying your dues? Giving evidence in your life that you do have a heart for God. here's my opinion, and every church is going to have to decide how they want to do this on their own. My opinion is that if, if you as a church member or even an elder in a church are, are looking at a person and, and saying, yeah, I know they're bap- whether they got baptized as a baby or as an adult, doesn't matter, right? You say, I see no evidence of a love for God, a love for other believers. Um, I see kind of a pattern of unrepentant sin in their life. If I saw something like that, what I would do is, is I would say, bring it to the elders, because I would say you should not stop serving that person until that person is put under church discipline. That, that's my, that'd be my take on it. Yeah, that, that well, that, that person ought to be a church member, yes. And should that be the case, they ought to be put under church discipline. I, I think so, yeah. Okay, are we clear on this one? And I'm, so this is the sign of initiation. You could say this is the sign of ongoing me- or membership in good standing, right? So, so that's a sign of, I'm a member in good standing. I paid, paid my dues, right? Okay, so here is the Reformed Baptist logic. And what you're going to notice is that this only really differs at a few points. It's, most of it's the same. So let, but let's start here with a point of disagreement, and I'm going to write these ones in, I had a red, oh, here we go, red. Old covenant, what type of covenant is it? Cove of, why would you say such a thing? Are you trying to say that people can work their way to God? Works Righteousness. Yeah, and, and, and what was that, that covenant for, the old covenant? To point to Christ, true. It was never for eternal life. It was for enjoyment of life in the land of Canaan. Right? So covenant of works. What about the new covenant? Covenant of grace. Okay, good. Ah, what about here? Type of membership under the old covenant. Mixed, do you all agree? Yeah, for the exact same reasons we already talked about. There are people in the covenant who don't have a heart for God. Right? Non-elect and elect together in the covenant. So mixed. What about this one? Hmm? The elect only. So we, the language we use for that is peer. Now does that mean... That when you walk, you know, it's a wonderful thing. If you walk into a Reformed Baptist church on a Sunday morning, and it, you look at the members of that church, and you say to yourself, certainly all among the elect. Is that, is that what you say to yourself? 
Now, everybody agrees the visible church. When, when you go to church and you see the people gathered there, the visible church is in fact mixed. We're all agreeing. That's not the point of dispute. The point of dispute is the covenant members. And we would say only those who indeed have, by faith, right, received gospel promises, only the elect, they are the only ones who are truly in the covenant. They're the, the only ones who are receiving salvific blessings. They're, they're the only ones receiving the blessing of eternal life. So that's what we mean by Peter. Okay, moving on to means of membership. How about right here? Old covenant. Physical birth. You've got to be born of the right family. Or, again... You can always become an Israelite. Physical birth. What about here? How do you get into the new covenant where you receive the blessing of eternal life through faith? Spiritual birth. Okay, I better take out my red pen. Spiritual birth. Okay, let's go down. What about signs? Same. And I'm going to add a little explanatory note to these. Circumcision you give to those who have after what? After they've been physically born. Isn't that true? You circumcise the baby after it's been physically born. Does that make sense? Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just to get this clear. So, if indeed baptism is the sign of the new covenant, um, and how do you get in spiritual birth, when do you give the sign of the new covenant. After spiritual birth. Makes sense, right? After spiritual birth. And then we would say the same thing here in terms of Passover and the Lord's Supper. And again, that's not our focus here tonight. Okay, so we have some places here where we have disagreement, right? They're all those places in red. Okay. Ooh, but before we talk about those, a question. If I ask this guy, what's the relation between Old and New Covenant? What would they say to you? I mean, if they really understood what it is that they believe, what would they say? Well, there is a Is that chair that chair? but they're both chairs. They're substantially the same. So you look at these two and you say, yep. Substantially, they are the same. Substantially the same. Different administrations, but substantially the same. If we go over here to this guy and say, what's the relationship between these two covenants? What does this guy tell you? 
One's, okay, good. One's old and one's new. What's the relationship between them? One's physical and one's spiritual. Okay, you could talk about it. One's for physical blessings, physical life. The other is for spiritual blessings, spiritual life. Good. Okay, yeah, a, a big component of how we, we would talk about this relation is we, we would say the old covenant is a type. P-Y-P-E. It's a type of the new covenant. What do I mean by that? It's looking forward to the new covenant. It's teaching us, it actually is teaching us things about the new covenant. Right? You, you got birth, don't you? In, in both these covenants, and you could say the physical, the, the, nest, the need to be physically born into this covenant is pointing forward to this better thing of it not mattering what family you're from. What matters is that you are spiritually born of God. It's pointing forward to that thing. So typologically looking forward to, or you, I, I think one of you said it's prefiguring, for, foreshadowing, prefiguring. And what we'd want to say is that there's this principle of escalation. Write that word here, escalation. What is escalate? You know what an escalator is, right? No? <laughs> what happens on an escalator? Things go up. And the big idea here in saying, well, there's escalation, is that as time progresses... As time progresses in God's plan of redemption, things just keep getting better and better and better. And so the new covenant, it's much better than the old covenant. Another way we could talk about this is to say that the new covenant is, it is, uh, you could say, con concluded or completed here, but it is revealed here. It's revealed, the new covenant is revealed in the old covenant, even though it's not concluded or completed here in, in the old covenant. It is revealed. What in the old covenant might reveal things to us about the new covenant? Sacrificial system, and, and the author of Hebrews talks a whole lot about that, right? What about the mediation of Moses? Does that tell us something about the new covenant? What about the land of Canaan? Hmm? Yeah, what about the temple? Right? These are all teaching us things that are going to be true in a much better way in the coming <coughs> new covenant. I'm just going to grab my computer because I didn't have space to write down everything I wanted to say here. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more because I want to leave time for questions. Um, but here's just an example of the way in which we see typology where the... And it's everywhere, by the way. I mean, you could spend the rest of your life looking at ways in which the coming new covenant and Christ, that's all foreshadowed and depicted in the old covenant. I mean, you're never going to run out of ways to see linkages or connections there. It's all teaching us Christ. But l listen to this. So 
membership in the old covenant was primarily by, we said, physical birth into the family of Abraham. You with me so far? How does that take place? Well, it takes place through his promised son. Who's that? Isaac. By, was that enough though? No, because you needed to have connection to his elect physical offspring. What do we call his elect physical offspring? Are all of Abraham's descendants part of his elect physical offspring? No, we refer to that as Israel, right? And it's ultimately realized, right, by the spread of Abraham's seed among the 12 tribes. Are you following me? His descendants among the 12 tribes. Well, what do we see take place in the New Covenant? We see that membership in the New Covenant is by spiritual birth into the family of God through his promised son, Jesus, by connection to his elect spiritual offspring, the church, realized through the spread of the gospel seed by the 12 apostles. There's a, there's a lot of similarity between those two things. It's almost as if God was teaching us about what he was going to be doing in the New Covenant back here in the Old Covenant. And we could just do that kind of thing all day long. Right? Everything that's happening in that Old Covenant is a picture of what's coming in the New Covenant. Yes? Correct. Yes. Yep. That, that's right. Yeah. It, but, but it has not yet come, is the, is the point, which is why we don't call this substantially, simil, substantially the same as this. We certainly are. Yes. What was that? He certainly is, yeah. Greg. I, I would think so, yeah, absolutely. Yes? Hmm. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it, and Paul even talks that way, right? He speaks of it as a mystery, what God is doing here in the New Covenant. Okay, just a few last things, then we're, we'll go to questions. Um, and really, all I want to talk about, it, all we have left to talk about, that I had planned to talk about was, you know, where in the Bible, you know, this is all well and good. I drew some boxes up on a board and wrote some things, and some are black and some are red. But where do we get this from in the Bible? I mean, that seems to be important, doesn't it? Did this come from the Bible? Now, we, we, we did talk through scriptures last night that I believe support this. Um, 
But if, if we're specifically focusing on this question, and oh, by the way, here's a quote. There's a, an essay that I have my students read when they're considering this, this very issue, and I have them read up on both positions, arguments for both positions, right? And there's an essay by J.I. Packer. Do you know J.I. Packer? Have you heard? Yeah, pretty well-known uh, individual. And he's defending this position. Right. He's defending this position. But I think there's a really telling, it, it's an honest quote. And this is what he says. And, I, I want to take this in the direction of, um, or at least open it up to talk about baptism, because that's one of the more practical payoffs, it, you know, kind of where you land here. He's defending pedo-baptism, defending infant baptism, and here's what he says. And I thought this was just a really telling quote. He says this, and you may have scratched your head, maybe you didn't, maybe it's all clear, you may have scratched your head and said, why, why do some people baptize babies? Have you ever asked yourself that? And you'll even hear people who baptize babies defend it in various ways. Well, come on, Jesus welcomed the children. Jesus really likes kids, right? I mean, that's a pull at the heart strings. That would be one reason that sometimes is given. Uh, or you can look at household baptisms in the New Testament would be another reason that's given. But at the end of the day, that's not where the disagreement is. So here's what Packer says, and I like that he gets right to the essence of the issue. He says this, There is no scriptural warrant at all for in infant baptism. Starts out there. There is no scriptural warrant at all for infant baptism if the continuity of the covenant be denied. Right? What he's saying is if you don't have this, if you can't prove that old and new covenant are substantially the same, he says the entire argument evaporates. Right? This really is where that particular issue of baptism is going to be decided on your view of the substantial sim similarity or dissimilarity of the old and new covenants. So, where would you go in the Bible? Jeremiah 31, how does that help us? It describes the new covenant. That's pretty good. Uh, well, let's turn, let's do one, this isn't necessarily better, but let's go to Hebrews 8. Because Hebrew, Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah 31, and then it adds a couple things. So we go to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8 quotes again, from Jeremiah 31. But here, I'm going to back up a little bit in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the old covenant, that is, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now you say to yourself, if they are better promises, how can they be the same promises? Okay, I'm going to keep going. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like. Whew. So the old and new covenants are substantially the same. Right? I mean, you look at these 
two chairs. Yeah, that's one chair, that's another. They're pretty similar. They're even the same color. They each have four legs. But what does he say here? I will establish a new covenant very much like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Is that what it says? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Okay. So he he continues. I'm going to skip over some of this. What's going to happen when the new covenant comes in verse 10? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What, what does that sound like? Regeneration, spiritual life. And, they, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And here's an interesting verse, verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What does that mean? Good news, we can all fire our pastors because we don't need anyone to teach us anything. Is that what? No, that's not what it means. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, w- w- Greg? I would take that to mean exactly that, that the, 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 the new covenant community is not a com- What's true of national Israel before their exile? We, well, yes, we've said it's a mixed community. How mixed is it? You know, percentage-wise. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's like, is it 60 40? You know, 60 40? So, yeah, it's, you have this eensy teensy number of people called the remnant. They're called the remnant. What, what, is, what is a remnant? It's a tiny little bit. There's a tiny remnant left of those who know the Lord. And, and you have the prophets calling out to other people, right? Encouraging them to return to the Lord. Know the Lord. That's not going to be happening anymore because everyone in this covenant will be regenerate. They will all have a heart for God. And then he says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Obsolete. All right, so so we have Hebrews 8. That's a pretty good place to go in underscoring this notion of the substantial difference between these two covenants. Um, we could go to Ezekiel 36 as well. Ezekiel 36 talks about the spiritual regeneration that's going going to be taking place. What about the other side? Over here. What would the verses be that you would go to if you're trying to support this position? If this is the position you, uh, you hold, you better not just know your verses, but you, you better know the verses. That, because really, what, what are we trying to do? What are we seeking after? Being right? We're seeking after the truth, right? And so we want to consider these verses as well, because it's all Bible, right? So what verses would you go to over here? Okay, 1 Corinthians 7. Let's, let's go there. <laughs> well, he, he, no biblical support unless you can prove the sub- substantial continuity of these two covenants. And he does offer some verses for that. And 1 Corinthians 7 is one of them. So 1 Corinthians 7. What does it say? 
Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? Hmm? <laughs> That's where I kind of feel like that verse falls apart as, as being used as a means to support the continuity of these covenants. The way the verse gets used is to say, children of at least one believer are counted holy, meaning that they're part of this set-apart covenant community. Right? That, that's how that verse is used. Does that, does that make sense? That logic makes sense? Children of at least one believer are counted holy, meaning that they're part of this set-apart covenant community. But as, as you pointed out, what's a maybe possible rejoinder there if you're dialoguing with someone who holds that position? What, what's a possible response? to someone who would, who would say that. It's the exact same thing you just said. Like you said, does, does, that, does that make your, your husband or wife, if they're not a believer, are they now part of the covenant? Does that, do I have to baptize them? You know, if I'm married to an unbelieving wife, does that mean I drag her to church and get her baptized? I don't... Maybe there are some Presbyterians that do that. I don't. Pastor Ryan, have you heard of any Presbyterians that do that? Are they real? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't get applied that. I don't, I don't think very often does it get applied that way. And really, if you, if you zoom out and look at the entire context of the passage, what is the question that Paul is answering? Anyone know? Once you become a Christian, what do you do now about your life situation? And that includes things, all kinds of things, right? One of the things is your marriage. And the, and the question that seems to be here is, Paul, what do I do now? I just became a Christian. My, my wife isn't a Christian. My children are not Christians. Do, do I have to divorce my, you know, I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked. Do I have to divorce my wife now? And what does Paul say? It's the same advice he gives to everyone. Just stay where you are. Stay in the situation in which God puts you. You don't need to quit your job, right, once you become a Christian. You don't need to make radical life changes in terms of, of your life situation ordinarily, right? You don't need to separate yourself from every other relationship that you have. And if you're married, you can honor that. Your children are not Ill illegitimate, right? You don't need to leave them. And one of the reasons he gives there is exactly that. Who knows what kind of positive influence you might have in their lives. So that's one passage, 1 Corinthians 7.14. How about another one? I've not heard that used. Tell me more about how that might, you're thinking that, that might be used. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, no, no, that's that, that's um, that's great. Yeah, I I I don't know that I've heard that exact because because here's the thing: it's not like Presbyterians aren't aware that there's this typology thing. They've read Hebrews; they know that there is typology, and I think most Presbyterians would look at something like that and say, "Yeah, Passover is a picture of what Christ is going to do on the cross, and we remember that through." the Lord's Supper, but that's something like that certainly could be used. Great. Any other ideas? Yeah. Okay, here's the biggie. But to do Acts 39, we got to back up, don't we? We got to go to uh, 38 and 39, yeah, th- th- those two verses. Um, to do that, I think we got we to gotta back up first, and we got to go to Genesis, right? Because the, the, the point in looking at Acts 2, 38 and 39 is that the same, the same thing is happening there as took place in Genesis. And that, let's, well, let's go to Genesis 17, 7. All right, here we go. Here's Genesis 17, 7. This is, and what's happening in Genesis 17? Yeah, yeah, so this is all part of those three chapters that deal with the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And here's what it says. It says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you <coughs> throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Right? So the covenant's between me and you and your kids. Right? Genesis 17, Seven. Now let's flip to Acts 2, 38 and 39. And this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. All right. For the... Let's just do 39. For the promise is for you and for your children. Peter's just got up. He's delivered a sermon. He's talked about the coming of this promise. I'm not unpacking what the promise is right here. But, but he, 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 there's a promise, and it's for you and your children. And you say, doesn't that sound exactly like what happened with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7? I'm making a covenant. It's between us. It's for your kids, too. Isn't that what it says right there? for you and for your children. It's inter- Even J.I. Packer, when he quotes this, he just puts a period after your children. He doesn't finish the verse. What does it go on to say after that? The promise is for you and for your children and for everybody else. For your children and not for your children. It's for everybody. That's the promise. Um, And what do they need to do to receive that promise? Let's back up to verse 38. Repent and be baptized. What does it not say? Be baptized and then repent. What's the order there? Repent, and then you get baptized. 
So basically everyone. I think here we're talking about an, an effectual call. Yeah, because the promise is for everyone that God calls. Well, you could probably look at it either way. But, but, but the big idea is that that promise, sure, you could look at it as an effectual call and say the offering of the promise goes out to everybody, but only those who repent take hold of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Is that kind of how you were thinking of it? Yeah, yeah that, I think that makes sense. In, in both affection, right? Both effectively, um, as well as just hearing the gospel call. Yeah. All right. So that's another proof text that's used to establish the continuity between these two covenants. Right. The Abrahamic covenant include Abra- Abraham and his kids. So does the new covenant. Anywhere else you'd go? Okay. And any, any paedo-baptist who really understands their position will just concede at the very beginning, we're not going to talk about household baptisms because that's an argument from silence. No kids are ever mentioned. And that can be argued either way, right? A, a, a credo-baptist can say, look, it doesn't, it doesn't point out any kids. And then the, the paedo-baptist can say, well, yeah, that's because they're assumed. But either way, that's not going to be a conclusive argument. But you could go there. With baptism itself, there's really one more passage that gets used. Anyone know which one that is? It's in a Pauline letter. Colossians, that's right. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. And here it is. In him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, and all through the Old Testament, what is, we'll just stop there for a second, what is God calling his people to do? And these are the circumcised people. They're all circumcised. At least the males are, right? They're, they've received that physical sign, but what's the problem? Hmm? They're not believers. And so he says, circumcise your hearts. Right? What I'm not looking for is that you just have this external marking. I want a heart change in you. Cut off the sin from within you. And, and what's being said here? In him, who's the in him? Jesus, right? You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Right? There's no external mark on you. But what has Jesus done? He circumcised your heart. He's given you a clean heart. Right? That's the idea. Christ has done that. And then what does it say next in verse 12? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so they'll look at that passage and say, well, circumcision's mentioned in verse 11, baptism is mentioned in verse 12. Therefore, this particular passage is asserting that there's a substantial continuity between circumcision and baptism in terms of what they signify. What would you say to that? It is. 
Yeah, and I would actually argue that the circumcision of Christ is a reference to his crucifixion. He was cut off for us. I think the most you can say is that both circumcision and baptism are covenant signs, and they both point us to Christ. You say, well, all the old covenant is pointing us to Christ. And there's a sense in which both circumcision and baptism are signs of initiation. We're, we're not disagreeing about that. But does that really prove the substantial sameness of these two covenants? Those are always going to be the go-to texts. I, I can't think of any others that are just repeatedly gone to. Anytime I have a conversation with a paedo-baptist, those are the passages they always go to first. Okay. I'm done talking. Um, questions? It's a new administration. It's a new administration. It's not a new covenant full stop, but it is a new administration. So they're going to acknowledge that there's progress in these covenants. They're, they're going to acknowledge, because, um, duh, right? Back here, has the incarnation happened? Has Christ lived his sinless life? Has he been crucified? I mean, they, they would acknowledge, yes, this is preparing us for this, and it's better because now that which, which was promised has all indeed arrived. So, so they can say it, it's a new administration and there are things that are better about it. Yeah. Because it's, a, it's an administration of the covenant of grace that is taking place under that broader banner. Um, and yet, there, there, still are, um, there still are obligations within it that do pertain to, to, to things like temporal benefits. So, so they, I think they'd admit that those elements are there. They would just say at the end of the day, that's all in service of its substance, which is the covenant of grace. And, and oftentimes they'll point out um, when you're looking at the giving of the Ten Commandments, how does God start the Ten Commandments? What? Hmm? An expression of grace. I'm the one who brought you out of Israel. So that's the, that's the broader banner, covenant of grace, and it's within that context that we have commands now being given. You feel like that's pushing it a little bit?
Yeah, and to be clear, what, what Paul is not saying is that there was ever actually another way of salvation. Right? And your Pado Baptist isn't going to say the Mosaic Law, even though it's included in that broader heading of covenant of grace, that the Mosaic Covenant was ever a way in which people could have tried to gain salvation. I mean, they're going to agree that really the means of salvation is, again, nobody's in disagreement about how salvation works. It's faith in God's covenant promises. Well, I, I mean, I think Paul's doing what he's doing rhetorically for a very specific purpose, because in, in his day, right, you, you have people who, they've received the sign, they're, they're part of the covenant, and they're presuming that they're going to be good enough before God if they just do the right externals. And he's, he's critiquing that particular viewpoint. Um, I don't think he's, he's not critiquing, I mean, there are places where he talks about the Mosaic Covenant be, being a covenant that just is, is going to lead to death. And, and the reason why is, he, but, but he's not critiquing the Mosaic Covenant itself, he, right? What he's critiquing is a misunderstanding of it. You know, people presuming that they could do enough works to be good, good with God. That's why he mentions Abraham. You know, he backs up even before Moses uh, in Romans 4 and demonstrates, listen, let's just go back to the father of this whole thing, the, parad- you know, the, the person that every Jew is going to be looking back to in terms of their heritage and say, at the very root, right? He didn't do enough good works to be justified in God's sight. That was never the way. So I think what Paul's doing is, is primarily correcting a misunderstanding of it rather than critiquing. I mean, in many other places, he talks about just how good the Mosaic Covenant, all the good things about the Mosaic Covenant in the bringing about of God's purposes and plans. Yes, sir. Yeah, and so, good. That, that's a common argument that you'll get. Um, and the argument will be, how in the world can the new covenant be better than the old covenant? Because in the old covenant, children were included, but in the new covenant, your children are excluded. How can that be better? What do you think? Okay. Say a little more. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's a really important thing to point out. What this covenant was for. It's, it's, did that covenant ever guarantee salvation to children? Are children now somehow left out of salvation? 
So looking at the purpose for each covenant, if, if, if this covenant was for temporal blessings in the, the land of Canaan, well, maybe it would be a restriction if now we're taking kids out of it. But we're taught, if it indeed is a substantially different covenant, the purpose is not for temporal life in the land of Canaan, but for eternal life. And furthermore, it's not, in a sense, it, it is... Um, more expansive because it, it is now and, and it, it's not that people who weren't Jews previously could not come to saving faith in Christ um, and yet you have this expansion and that's one of the things that Paul refers to as a mystery right the, the inclusion of the Gentiles now in, in the people of God people of every the gospel is now going out to people of every tribe and every tongue um, and really what's, be, what, what's being delimited here is the same thing being delimited here. Exactly the same. If we're talking about the elect. Because there's never any presumption over here, over here that your kids are included among the elect automatically by being part of your family. You have further thoughts on that? Pastor? No, no further I, I tend to, I've tended to be sympathetic to, to, to the, just in the context, to the interpretation that what's being referred to there is that they are legitimate children and you ought not to leave them. You ought to remain in the household with them. You don't need to leave the household because you've become a Christian. That family unit still is a legitimate family unit. Your marriage is still valid. Right. You don't need to leave your wife. You don't need to leave your kids. Legitimate. I mean, what, what sense are the husband and wife made holy? What sense are they holy? I, I think it's talking about the legitimacy of the family unit. But, I, but, but then another thing, of course, um, Steve, you pointed this out, was, was that there's a sense in which a believer in a household has an impact on the others in their household. So your presence in that household can be sanctifying. Yes, sir. In eschatological views, they, they tend to be pretty similar. Yeah, they tend not to have very different views. What was that last thing you said? Yeah, yeah, no, no difference there. No, yeah. Other questions? Yes, sir. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what God is always aiming for in any covenantal era is always for obedience from the heart. And that, that, I mean, that, that really is what Jesus and, and, and Paul are underscoring in the New Testament, that ex- external obedience, just ritual, that is not pleasing to God. He wants obedience from the heart. Even when you're obeying for the sake of temporal promises, say in the Mosaic Covenant. So you, you have David, a man after God's own heart. He's part of the same covenantal era. He's, he's in an era where the fulfillment of God's promises that have been explicitly given are very much temporal and yet he still wants obedience from the heart. And the prophets keep coming back to that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, and, and this is not a direct, but mo- maybe more of a bit of an indirect kind of answer to that. I, I think that this framework, to me, um, has just helped me really to a- appreciate the biblical story of God's plan of redemption and just be astounded. Um, like, I, I went through those, those details before about you know, Abraham having a promised son that comes through um, this elect member of his household, then going out to the, the, the 12 tribes and how you see those parallels and what's happening in the New Testament. And, and to me, it just blows my mind the way that God has meticulously designed every aspect of of history, all to point us forward to Christ. And, and one of the things that it's a, really allowed me to do um, is not, not just appreciate God's, God's hand in providence as a, a master storyteller, just weaving together all these, these threads of narrative to all point us to Christ. Um, but I think it's, it's really just edified me in my reading of the Old Testament and just seeing Christ throughout it um, and just the way that all of Scripture teaches us Christ. So the first thing that comes to mind is it just leads to worship of the God that could design such an amazing thing. I mean, how can you get better than Greg's question? How how has this benefited you <laughs> spiritually? And at the end of the day, I mean, I love that you asked that question last. And I mean, we'll do, I mean, that is where this all should go: is to amazement and, and and wonder of our God and the plan of redemption that He has brought about in Christ. Um, that's where this should all lead.
And if it's not doing that, if it's just a, a system and now I'm in competition with this guy, he's got a little bit of a different system than I do, and now we're, we're duking it out, right? I mean, if, that, if that's where this all, all leads us, I th- we're thinking about it wrong. So maybe that's a good note to end on. Yeah. Thank you. And I'll just say one more time, thank you for the hospitality that you've extended to me while, while I'm here and just allowing me to be part of uh, this body, part of this community, and to have time of fellowship with you and just to get to know all of you a, a little bit. So I feel like I've been very warmly received, so I just want to thank all of you. Thank you. And I will thank my wife, yes. <laughs>